1: welcome to episode 96 of losing a child always andy's mom i'm marcy larson andy's mom everyone who has spent time in a hospital room knows that it gets very boring when you are in the hospital especially if you are a kid in the hospital. Kids love to play and do all sorts of active, wonderful things. And when you're sick and in a hospital bed, it's just not any fun. Today's guest, Marcy, and her son, Michael, dealt with that during Michael's illness. And Michael took it upon himself to try to make hospital rooms just a little less boring in the form of what came to be known as Boredom Busters. Since Michael's death last year on Easter, Marcy and her family have taken it upon themselves to continue on with this legacy of Boredom Busters. So you can visit their website at boredom-busters.org and check them out and help support them in this great effort. For today though, we get to hear more about Marcy and about Michael's story. We hear about what, who Michael was as a person and how he really lives on through this organization. You can get information on Boredom Busters through all of their social media contacts as well as through all of mine. So you can go to Always Andy's Mom on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You also can see Boredom Busters on all of those platforms as well. But for now, I just want you to enjoy hearing all about Michael. Thank you so much. I get to talk with another Marcy today. This is a first. Very exciting. Marcy interviewing Marcy.
2: Yeah, that's pretty funny.
1: <laughs> I know. Now, this is a Marcy M A R C I E, and I am M A R C Y. But we both talked about how uh, members of our own families have spelled uh, the names the wrong way, so we are quite used to having our names spelled the opposite way and have no problem with it. So
2: <laughs> that's right. Oh,
1: so Marcy is here today to talk about her wonderful son, Michael. So do you just want to start out by telling us all about Michael?
2: Okay. Um, Michael was the youngest of my three children. He was six years younger than his oldest brother and two years younger than his sister. Uh He was, I would say he was the, the most outgoing in our family, similar to my personality. He just would talk to everybody, knew everybody, was just very well liked and you know, would say hello to a stranger, help anybody who needed it. And then when he was about 10 years old, he, he loved sports. He was a big basketball player, played year round, always in the driveway. He was mm-hmm. referred to as, oh, the basketball kid. Cause everybody knew he was out there playing. Really? And, and then when he turned 10, he was in fourth grade and he had taken some, standardized testing. And he was a smart kid and we got the test scores back. And some of them were so low that it didn't match the way he was. So I went to the school and they said, oh, it's one test one day. And then we went on vacation to the Bahamas and we were in the resort and we were on the way home. And he said, sometimes I forget words. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, like, I forget, you know, like the thing you wear in the top of your head. And I said, a hat? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I forget words. So we came back. We went to the pediatrician, who was my cousin. Mm-hmm. And she sent us immediately for an MRI. And before I even got home, we were getting the call saying that he had a brain tumor. Oh, my god. So, so we, the next two days, you know, we were in shock, went to a uh, neurologist, a neurosurgeon, and they he had two biopsies done on it. They thought it was a grade two astrocytoma and it didn't need to come out right away. But what was happening was he was having seizures that we didn't even know were seizures. So 10-15 times a day he was having these seizures and was losing words. And so for a little over a year he was on medication. He was seen by a neurologist at Johns Hopkins. And then after that, his quality he'd go out of the house to play, have a seizure, come back, sleep for three or four hours. And we decided it was time to to do something. So he had craniotomy done in sixth grade. And they were able to remove the entire tumor, and the, so he didn't want to. He had a big scar on his head, and mm-hmm. he like he grew his hair long. He didn't like people to refer to him as the kid with the brain tumor. Yeah. So he, you know, just kind of we watched him very carefully for years. And I would say, you know, you don't have a favorite child, but you the, he needed more than the other two at that time. And he spent, I mean, he was home miss school for about two years. So he was home with me a lot and he went back to school in seventh grade and seventh and eighth grade, you know, he started to do better and he always kind of had a little bit of issues with like organization and losing things. And we all thought that was, you know, from his tumor. And then when he got to high school, he, Did fine. He played sports. He had a lot of friends. He was um, very active in young life. He was a, a wildlife leader for the kids in the seventh and eighth grade. He went to camp every summer. He was an avid snowboarder.
1: Wow, it sounds like he was able to do quite a lot then. So did he need treatment after his surgery or was his surgery just considered curative and that was kind of the only treatment he needed then after that?
2: Yes, he just needed to have MRIs every six months just to check, it never grew back.
1: And I suppose his prognosis was really quite good then when it wasn't coming back, I imagine?
2: Yes, so after like four years, they said, well, every couple of years. And then as he started to get older, he kind of fought it and said, why do I need to? I'm fine. I don't have any after effects of it. And so he graduated high school. He went to Penn State and joined a fraternity, made lots of friends, had, you know, great four years there, you know, yeah, girlfriends, everything, life. He was traveling. He was a world traveler. My husband would take him. You know, he went to Iceland and Tibet, and you know, lots wow. of different places. And then moved into his own apartment. Had a great job in an accounting firm. Had a serious girlfriend, and he developed a cough. And we just couldn't figure out what the cough was. So we took him to uh, a pulmonologist, an allergist, a gastroenterologist, mm-hmm. and nobody.
1: And when was this then?
2: This was in the fall of 2019. Okay. So he had been working for a couple of years.
1: Right. And he had been cancer free then for a long, long time.
2: Right? Yeah. And they didn't even, because he had no treatment, they weren't, you know, considering that he had cancer. So, right, right, and we just went to everywhere, but no one ever drew blood in all the visits that we went to. Interesting. And then- he, his heart rate was really high. He could barely breathe. So I took him to just our general practitioner. She did an EKG and she looked at him and she said, he's very sick. Take him to the emergency room. So we took him to the emergency room and that was like in February of 2019. And we're in the emergency room and they're doing all this blood work and, and everything. And one resident said, I think he has leukemia and that was before, I think just from looking at him, he had no, um, his eyes were completely white and they, um, so they did blood work and it came back like his platelet count was two. And he was going to work every day. I mean, just coughing away. And then began our journey of treatment. And originally they thought it was myelodermaids. This plastic, this plastic. Yeah. MDS. And so, but he went through the treatment. We, it took a while because they wanted to consult with Hopkins. And so we started out at our local, you know, big hospital here in Virginia. And he went through the first treatment and then another round and he he was doing great. He was feeling great. And then we were going into a bone marrow transplant. And my daughter, my daughter and my son both tested. My daughter was the better, was the perfect match. Mm -hmm. And she did everything and she could to, you know, prepare for it. He had the bone marrow transplant. We were at Hopkins. We were supposed to be, we moved to Baltimore. And he was so compliant. And he was the kind of person that would, you know, the cleaning person would come in and he would say, how are you today? And he always had things like, you know, he would want things in his room that he could, you know, fruit that he could offer to somebody else. And he was, Oh, he was, he was the one that all the nurses said, can I want him tonight? You know, I want to be his nurse because he was on an adult floor. So he was with there with people that were at least 30 years older than him. And he was the one doing all the laps and, you know, talking to the nurses who were really his age. Mm-hmm. So he was ready for transplant, had transplant. And about that was in July. And then in September, the cancer came back as a, in just much worse as AML, leukemia. Mm-hmm. And they thought maybe he had had hemorrhoid surgery. And they thought that maybe some of the cells were hiding within that. And they did another round of, of chemo and it just, they could not ever get him back to remission. And then he was getting blood, you know, platelets and blood much more often. And we would sit there and, and wish we could thank every person that donated that blood because that's what was keeping him alive. And then he had, he got into a phase one clinical trial Mm -hmm. that was very rough on him and it damaged his lungs. And this was right around the time that COVID was starting. So he had spent a few weeks in the hospital, by himself and that's when they told him that there was nothing else they were sending him home and that he probably just had a couple of weeks and he came home but he still wanted to fight he still wanted to do the transfusions and get more time and we called our other two kids and they came home and we spent five days just as our family of five and Playing games and eating the foods everybody liked and just spending time together.
1: Oh, that's beautiful.
2: They both went home and we called in palliative care. Mm -hmm. And then by the next, that was on a Friday. And by Saturday morning, it was just going downhill. And they said, we called in hospice, Mm -hmm. which they sent us three different people. You know, so the first, person was very good the second person was was good and he was still alert and talking and um and then on Easter Sunday is when it just he got up this I didn't see him this bad and he was on full oxygen two tanks and he just so they they came and then they started giving him the morphine and he was out of it yeah. from then. never really woke up. Yeah. yeah. So that was hard. But my hardest thing was I walked out of the room. I couldn't watch him pass away. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's really, really hard to do. It's a yeah. hard thing to do.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's been one of the hardest things for me this year, just kind of on rerun thinking. Mm-hmm. Maybe I shouldn't have walked out of the room, and
1: no. yeah, you but, do that to yourself, don't you?
2: One yeah, always yeah.
1: says all the time to me, "Don't should yourself, don't should yourself." But it's it's hard not to do that,
2: right? It's hard when I help. walked out, like I laid in the bed with him, and I was rubbing his leg, and I was telling him it was okay, and then I walked out, and his two best friends were here, and my husband his friends were like laying across him on the bed and they stayed until he passed away. And then the funeral home came. And like the, when I, my other two children were here, it was like a big discussion about burial, you know, at 27 to make that decision. And he did not want to be buried. He wanted to be cremated and his ashes spread in Yosemite. A place he had been in love. And I asked that we be able to put down like a plaque. And we did that, attached it to my father's so that I would have a place. And he said, he would say, I'm in you, you're in me, you know. Yeah. And that to look for him in the rainbows as a white butterfly. So
1: That's beautiful. Mm
2: -hmm. So, but I, you know, so I've done all the the therapy and the grief counseling. And so about eight weeks ago, I started EMDR.
1: Yeah. Yep.
2: I think that is helping me more than any of the other, I mean, medication too, but I think that's helping me more than any of the other therapies. And, you know, and with COVID, we haven't had a celebration of life we've done we couldn't have people in our for the whole time he was sick we couldn't have people in our house you know we've been marrying masks for two and a half years and um we let his his best friends come in and then a couple of other friends that you know but everybody had to get a flu shot they had to you know wash their hands wear masks take their shoes off before i would let anybody in the house and so he got to spend time with his friends and he had one very neat experience when he was in Baltimore. I was a Make-A-Wish wish granter for 12 years. Really? And, wow. Yeah, and I reached out to his favorite band that was coming to Baltimore to do a concert and I asked if they would stop by the hospital and say hello and, or whatever, never fully expecting to hear back from them.
1: What was the name of the band?
2: Iration it's a reggae band from a lot of them are from Hawaii from California Hawaii and they came to our apartment that we were living in and they did a concert for him in the apartment
1: oh my word
2: they brought their instrument everything and they played for him and then that night at the concert they shouted out to him and said you know you know our friend Michael and And so that was very nice. And I've kept in touch with them through the year. They've been really wonderful. So That
1: is beautiful. What a cool story. That
2: was, yeah. So it was, that was great. When Michael was 10 and in the hospital, he was having a spinal tap and he was very nervous and anxious and, you know, having a hard time with it. And somebody came in with like a little bag of, toys for him to play with. And there was a, I remember there was a chess set and his brother sat down and they played chess and he was able to get through the procedure. And then when we left, they said that that had been the last bag they had to give out. So we, as a family said, oh, we can do something. We'll start putting them together ourselves. So we called it boredom busters and we started filling Actually, it was shoe boxes filled with toys and games and things. And we delivered 5,000 of them over the years.
1: Wow. To different hospitals?
2: To different hospitals. And then, but it was more local.
1: Yeah, right. That we
2: were doing. And then it actually became a 501c3. We got all the paperwork the day after Michael passed away. So we had filled it out. It took a while and we got that. And so now we're on a 501c3 and we delivered 2000 last year all over the country now. So we ship them to Ronald McDonald houses or any someone put our name on a blog a momcology or a leukemia blog and we ship everywhere. And so our goal this year is 2000. And we're going to do an online auction uh, July 31st to wow. raise funds for it. And yeah, it, companies have been really good. Um, this one, especially this Regal USA, has donated so many games and toys to us. You know, he it's a young guy who owns it and he's been great. And so my basement looks like a, a toy storage room and
1: So what kinds of things do you have in there? Just give us an example of what would be in a box.
2: Every box has like, I put a regular deck of cards for the parents. Okay. And then games like Uno and Battleship. And we've broken them down into age groups. So like a three to eight year old will have, you know, crayons and coloring books and stickers, other sorts of games and I had never done, we always did them three to eight, nine to 14. Okay. I got a huge request from Boston Medical Center for the under twos. Okay. So we started doing those. And then when Michael was in the hospital, he decided he wanted to give one to everybody on the floor. Okay. So we did young adult ones, even mm-hmm. though the people were older. So for those, we put like a 10 foot, phone cord in it okay because when you're laying in your hospital bed a regular phone cord doesn't reach you bad Mm -hmm. and like a an amazon gift card and some stationery and we put postcards from this wonderful company in idaho sends them to um it's called blue paper and she sends them to match whatever state we're sending to she donates them because when oh, wow. Michael was in the hospital, he wanted to send a birthday card to somebody, and I went down to the gift shop, and it looked like it was from like 1960. Oh, you know. So we always and I always put stamps on them so they can just write it out and send it, and um, I put Mad Libs in there, lots of different games, Mancala, uh huh, and then when we ship them, we just. So, so far this year, we've done, we just counted yesterday, 471 of them.
1: Wow. Wow. And they just go to uh, go to different hospitals and things like that?
2: They go to, so how, it, oh. actually, so they go to Ronald McDonald House in Baltimore. They go to Hopkins. They okay. go to this um, Ullman House, which is a place in Baltimore, like the Ronald McDonald House, but for young adults, there was a need for people who didn't have a place to stay during treatment. It's all free. Mm -hmm. Um, We stayed there a couple of times when it was just my husband or I, but then somebody put it on this leukemia lymphoma website. So I started getting requests from people for individual bags. And I said, Mm -hmm. I said, I'm happy to send you a bag, but can I send you 24 and you take them to your clinic or your hospital? Sure. So that's how a lot of them have been delivered. And some of our friends, my brother-in-law drove a hundred of them to Boston a couple of weeks ago. And Michael volunteered at a camp called Flying Horse Farm, which is part of Paul Newman's. It's one of his camps. And they are doing it differently with COVID. It's doing it as families, but I'm going to send them a bunch of them for their weekend camp things. And Mm -hmm. really anybody that requests, they always ask, well, can I send you extra? And then I always put extra unwrap things in for their children, in addition to them taking a yeah. bag, so. Yeah,
1: that's nice. Yeah, I think back to when my foster son Valeriano had his kidney transplant. He was, it was just before his 18th birthday, and he was in the hospital with a transplant. He had quite a few complications. So he was in the hospital with a transplant for two, three weeks, and then we were in the hospital, I think, three more times that summer. So it was a lot. And I, I know it was so important for us to have things to do and the child life people would do their best and and they would bring stuff which was so helpful to be able to bring little games you could check out games they would do bingo like over the tv screen so they play against each other and then win prizes it it just you need so much to try to occupy your mind especially when you're a little bit older like that like you know he was almost Eight. 18 and i have to say the funniest thing was when he won this i think with bingo was a little nerf gun set little nerf oh. gun pistols and so he t- thought it was really funny to wait for the nursing staff before they would come into the room and shoot them with these Nerf gun bullets when they came in. And it was hilarious. And some of the nurses just loved it, you know, and they would, and sometimes they'd come in and they'd be all prepared and like watching out (laughs) if, if he was going to shoot him this time. And other times they'd just be completely oblivious and he would catch them off guard and get this little Nerf bullet, you know, ricocheting off the arm or something. But it, it just makes things a little more fun when right. there is just not a lot of fun going on, you know, no, especially when, you know, he got his kidney. So at the time, his little buddy that he had, um, that he, he always did his uh, dialysis with, interestingly, it was crazy. He's a, he was a little, little kid, not more than about six. And they went every time and did dialysis together. And I remember saying to the nurse... Oh, he's going to be so sad to have to do dialysis by himself. Little did I know he had gotten his kidney 12 hours before. So it turns out they were in rooms just down the hallway from each other. And like you were talking about, you know, you lived in the masks, right? Before COVID, you lived in the masks. So did we, right? When you're a transplant family, you live with the mask, because mm-hmm. that's just what has to happen. And so that little boy could come visit us and we could go visit them because we were both transplant families. So, right. you know, you're not going to be bringing illness into each other. So anyway, but, you know, those other kids, like they had four kids getting transplants at the same time. And all three of the rest of them went home. And, you know, there we still sat. So it, it's so helpful to have something to do.
2: Right. And right now with with COVID all the playrooms are shut down. Oh, I know.
1: Yeah, we used to go so, up and do that. We used to do papa shot.
2: Yeah. So everything is, pop is pop shut pop. down mm-hmm. and they are so appreciative that yeah. because these are all brand new and one company when I first ordered from them the stuff came and it wasn't shrink-wrapped and then I couldn't use it. And so then I reached out to them and said, is there a way you could shrink wrap each item? And they said, absolutely. You place your order and we will shrink wrap them. And yeah. So that's, but one thing is like, I can't listen to anybody playing basketball. That's one thing that's, you know, a trigger, Mm -hmm. you know, I had a lot of triggers going to the grocery store. Michael loved Capri Suns. He would drink the 10 pack, you know, at one time. And so now I, you know, I have two little grandsons and I think I could never see them doing that. He was actually in December, they were baptized and he was the godfather to the older, my four and a half year old grandson. Wow. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: My four and a half year old grandson at school told his teacher that his uncle Michael came to visit him and he's in a school that's, you know, very locked down and they were probably alarmed. And he said, no, he's a white butterfly. So they have kind of instilled that in them to look for him. And we gave everybody rainbow makers that you haven't, you know, put in your window and we gave them to the whole, to all the Iration people and um, everybody that was just really close to him. And we were just looking this morning and I think so far, we have about 300 people that have responded to his celebration of life Yeah, you were saying that's
1: coming up in September. Yeah,
2: right? yeah. So
1: what all are you planning to do then?
2: It all depends on a lot of the COVID restrictions. Sure. <laughs> so sure. my son and daughter-in-law and the grandchildren will come in and my daughter and we're having it. Michael was very involved, I, I was raised Jewish. So Uh I, you know, our customs were very different than Uh what, and Michael really embraced Christianity Uh and Buddhism. And so we're having it at the church that he went to. The pastor at the church has known him since he was a little boy because his son was friends with Michael and they played basketball Uh together. Uh So we're just going to have, we're going to have it there and then just have some sort of figure out how you feed, you know, 400 people and yeah, it's going to be tough. You know, I I think people want to say, oh, but it's going to be completion for you. It's going to be closure, but.
1: That's not a good word actually. That's not a good word at all, but it will, it will be good for you. I think it will be helpful for you because it's, it, I'm thinking back to when we had our stuff going on obviously it was right away but i know i did feel just to feel that love from other people and a little yeah. bit of that support from other people was tremendous right and it yes. was in some ways really tiring but in other ways i felt like each person i saw and of course it's different because i could hug them because it was you know back in 2018 right. But they would just, every hug I got felt like they were just trying to take just a little bit of that pain and heaviness away, you know, just so things weren't quite as heavy. And still it was tremendously heavy, but to have, feel like I can take a little bit from you, just let me take a tiny bit from you was tremendous. Better than yeah. I thought it would be actually, and it and it was more um, of a relief really than I thought it would be. You know, you just, yeah. just oh,
2: So yeah, so I think that because whatever. you know normally somebody comes and brings you dinner and you get to hug them and talk mm-hmm. to them, and mm-hmm. we just haven't had that. But I I my sister lives in Baltimore, and uh, we hugged for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Cause we're both yeah. vaccinated now and we saw each other and it was yeah. just so nice to feel that, you know, comfort from, cause originally everyone was kind of pushing us to do a zoom right away.
1: Yeah. And, and I've talked to people who have done that and, you know, I think some of them are real happy with it and others not. So yeah. much. So, mm-hmm.
2: no, cause he was so outgoing. He would be, you know, the last person to leave any event. mean. Mm-hmm. And, and what's been hard is seeing, you know, on social media, his friends getting engaged, getting married. Yeah. In Virginia, we have something called Life with Cancer. Mm-hmm. And they are almost like child life for adults, That's you know, nice. for older. And they immediately, before he started treatment, came in and talked to him about fertility. Yeah. And said, you know, chemo can destroy your fertility and they set everything up for him to be able to store things in a cryo lab for when it was time, you know, if he wanted children. And and so that's the last thing that we haven't done is to call them to tell them what we what his wishes were to to, you know,
1: to do with
2: that with that
1: yeah what so are that, his wishes do you know Did he that he you?
2: wanted them destroyed yeah yeah he didn't yeah so and i and can he was see little, why
1: you wouldn't want them destroyed right now no
2: Mm-mm. no huh. i feel like it's the only thing that's kind of living
1: right, right.
2: so yeah. and he had a very serious girlfriend friend that he broke up with because his doctor told him he really needed to focus on himself and not, you know, and we moved him home and, you know, it was very hard. I I started seeing a therapist through life with cancer in the very beginning to try to figure out how did you navigate a young adult through this, right? Because the decisions were his, yes, not ours. And, you know, when he was 10, they were our decisions. And Mm -hmm. this was very different to, you know, but he was compliant. He there i don't think there was anything he said no to that we would have wanted him to do and
1: that's you know. truly a blessing because yes. that that is difficult when that yeah. happens when it's not the same and you right wish things would have been done
2: differently right and he told me he was most worried about me mm-hmm. he thought because we were so close that it would be hardest on me and,
1: Yeah, I I wanted to go back to that a little bit, how you were saying that you were having some regrets, not sure if you did the right thing by stepping out of the room. And I just wanted to say sometimes I think people can know when exactly they are going to die and they can wait. So, you know, I've told this story before. I'm pretty sure the story of my grandmother dying. So my grandmother was dying of cancer. And my Aunt Penny, who is a listener to the show, I do shout out to Aunt Penny all the time. But anyway, uh, she's also the one that would spell my name wrong when I was young. So. Right. <laughs> anyway, so Aunt Penny was flying back from to Iowa to be with her. And she, she got back. She got in the room. She said, Mom, I'm here. I don't even think she sat with her very long at all. And she said, Mom, I've got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back and she went to the bathroom and my grandmother died while she was in the bathroom. So my grandma waited until she got there, but then Mm -hmm. she again waited until she left the room, you know? And I, and that seems so like just exactly the way she wanted to die, that she died on her terms that way. And I wonder if that was Michael a little bit. If Michael was waiting somehow until you left so you wouldn't have to see that moment
2: right I think so I
1: yeah and thinking of it that way then you can take a little bit of that guilt that you're feeling that you weren't there right because Michael probably just didn't want you to see him die, to see that moment you know
2: I don't I don't think so and like you I lost my mother when I was 14 Mm -hmm. So I had had a major loss, right? It was, yeah. So I lost my mother at 14. She had been sick for a very long time for seven years. And then my dad lived to 101. And when he was passing away, he was in the hospital and my brother flew in from California. My father held on. Mm -hmm. and passed away when my brother got there. So I I do believe that you have that some sort of power, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much Michael was aware that last day because he was on so much morphine, and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they just kept giving it to him and giving it to him. But he made kind of like a choking sound, Mm -hmm. and that's when I had to walk out of the room. I said, I just can't see him, you know, my, and my husband was there and he said it was peaceful. He just closed his eyes and, you know, and that was it. So, but his friends stayed until like three o'clock in the morning until the funeral home came and they were great. And they have been just great calling. These were, you know, one of them is his best friend since he was five, the other since he was like 11. And
1: oh, so these are childhood friends. They yeah, Stay so friends through adulthood.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I see by the responses from the Evite, all of his fraternity brothers, all of his friends from Penn State are all coming in. And mm-hmm. so I think that it will be a good way to honor him.
1: Mm-hmm. How long had he been out of school when this cancer came?
2: Um, four years.
1: Okay, so he had been out for a
0: little bit.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had lived on his own. He had lived with a roommate with his best friend, then he lived on his own and um and he was actually talking about during the whole treatment stuff that when he was better he was gonna move to Colorado. And his one of his best friends did it. He said, I came for him and he moved to Colorado and you know, he says I think about him all the time and I, the one thing my therapist did ask me the other day was she felt like I was isolating myself uh-huh. just because it's so hard to put on that smile and pretend that everything is okay when you're just dying inside. Uh-huh. So I have been doing that. Yeah. But
1: It's good she called you out on it in a way. But it's it's hard to know what the best thing is, right? Because you do feel this pressure to put on this happy face and to put on this persona that is not really you when you do that. But then you feel a little guilty because you know you're not being genuine. You're not being genuine to Michael and to... Your truth to how it is, and so it's hard when you feel like now you're almost like you're living a lie a little bit,
2: you know? Yeah, yeah. Like when people say, "How? Oh, how do you feel? How are you? How are you?" Well, I mean, what are you supposed to say? Fine? fine. No, I'm not fine. You no,
1: know? you're not. No, you're not. I a yeah. lot of times just say hanging in there or doing okay or something i don't ever really say fine or good or anything anymore and it comes up a lot you know in those kind of little conversations and it's funny because i just yesterday saw a family and i was sensing something was off with them from the beginning just with some things like so what are your plans for fall oh i don't know and she just graduated from high school and like i i just was sensing something was a little bit off and then it turns out that her dad had just died. Well, they didn't tell me. And so then we, it grew into this huge conversation then about grief because they didn't know anything about me. They didn't know my son had died. They didn't know any of that. And so then we had a really nice, lovely conversation about grief and letting others take care of you and being okay to be genuine to yourself and others and because they did definitely feel this pressure like to not say things right just be like oh everything's great we just had graduation and everything's great but it's not great it's horrible right it's horrible right so anyway it's it's important I think to try to get a good balance of what you can be open about and what you still want to keep a little bit to yourself too
2: right because I want to talk about him sure you know, I want I don't want him to be forgotten I want but that you know the I've learned to say that the best thing to say is tell me about your family I will never say to somebody how many kids do you have or how old are your kids or because when people say that to me, it's just, oh, you know, rattling. That
1: is so great, Marcy. That is, oh, I'm going to remember that. Because I don't ever ask anyone how many kids they have either anymore. No. Because I don't want to be asked, so I never ask. But that's a beautiful substitute question to say, Yeah. To say about your family.
2: Yeah. I read in one of those that. books.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, that was a brilliant thing. Whoever came <laughs> right. up with that, I love it. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier about all these books that we have. I
2: know. Yes. Yeah,
1: because people give you all sorts of books.
2: Oh yeah, like like you had said one you had eight of, and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, I think I have three of those upstairs. And
1: oh really, of that same book? Yeah. You think? Yeah. Yeah, Lament of for a one... Son. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, yeah. not that it's a bad book; it's a good book, no. but. Yeah, but But, I don't, who needs eight copies? Not me.
2: (laughs) Right, and I don't know that reading them is, you know, like the best thing either. I mean, just.
1: It really depends on where you are. There are some books that I've been given that they just sort of irritate me because they seem, the people that wrote them seem so together and I just feel like I'm a mess and I don't want to read about someone who's all put together and their griefs all wrapped up in this nice little package. And I don't know if they felt pressure to write a book where it's neater or if they're just so far out from the death that it is actually that neat. Um, but, I, but to me, if I have to read something, I feel better reading about something that's messier. I mean we talked about how you started following me because of Anna Winston Donaldson's book Rare Bird. Right. Right and because right. You, you have a mutual friend and and she wrote she wrote about the messy stuff. Right. And I mean that's what I do about on the podcast is I talk about the messy stuff. I don't just talk about this rosiness because it's not and rosy. And I think
2: I think that um losing a child is so different than, you know, other people saying, oh, I lost my parent who was 95 and it, you know, it's sad, but it's, it's not the same.
1: I know. I mean, I it, lost my mom who was 42 and it's not the same. And yeah. she was 42. That's pretty young, younger than me by several years now. Yeah. But it's still different than my 14 year old son it's still for me not for my grandmother obviously but for me was in the right order i mean i shouldn't be without my mom my mom shouldn't die when i'm 21 years old but what really shouldn't happen and is have your child die
2: right
1: when they're a teenager so
2: yeah and then when you have other children you have to figure out how to not you know like my other children are older so mm-hmm. they're on their own, but still, you know, I don't want them to feel like they've lost their parent, yeah. you know, from, yep. from yep. this, but, mm-hmm. but I'd love, I mean, if you read, if people who listen to it know somebody who could use our boredom busters, I would be happy to, yeah. you know, they know somebody who's battling.
1: So I want to know what Michael's part in that was in the boredom busters. Because I feel like it was, did it kind of start with him feeling like he wanted to do it? or
2: It did. He started and and he, in the beginning, was the one who always picked everything out. I Uh think, you know, and back then it was, we really catered to the younger kids. So it was Legos and whatever he was enjoying playing. And we did all that with our own, as our own family. So we didn't really get donations or, you know, that was just a family project that Mm -hmm. we would do. And um, so he would pick everything out, we'd go to the store. And then, you know, when Amazon was easy, we would order from Amazon. And uh, but once we became a 501c3, sometimes I'll come home and I can't get in my front door.
1: Because
2: they'll be because people like somebody will donate that we don't even know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, say, I read about you in something and I want to donate. And, you know, so and now doing this auction, it's amazing the people that have said yes to to donations. Um, one of them is Art Smith, who was Oprah's chef. Oh, OK. He met Michael when Michael was going through his brain tumor. And he's going to do a Zoom cooking class for us with somebody yeah okay so so
1: what kinds of things do you have on this auction
2: you should um, promote it up a little bit yeah we have um things from lululemon we have lots of gift cards to restaurants you know that are all over the place um we have tickets to iration um they are giving us yeah they're giving us tickets to the show in Baltimore and then two tickets to anywhere else in the country that they're playing that we want. Um just like golf places and um a company called Sugar Wish that sends out candy things and just oh, you know, a lot of so fun, fun things. Fun. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. It's been a challenge setting it up, but
1: so is it an in-person auction or is it an online auction, right? It's going to okay. be an
2: online. That's so what appears. we'll do is we'll put it. So our, our website is boredom slash busters.org. Uh-huh. So we'll put it links on there too. And then we have a Facebook and an Instagram and, and all that. I would stay off social media if it wasn't for Boredom Busters. Because uh-huh. I find social media to sometimes be raw. Yeah, seeing always. everybody on vacation, everybody, you know, doing stuff. But uh, Michael said, please continue my legacy through Boredom Busters. So I say each bag has a tear on it as I put them together. and mm-hmm. But it's a distraction and, and I know it's making a difference.
1: Well, and it's something you can do still with Michael, right? It's yes. like the two of you are doing it together. And that is such yeah. a healing thing to be able to feel like you still have this connection to your child. Yeah.
2: Cause Michael, I have a friend bought me a necklace of a heart and Michael's quote was the purpose in life is to help others through it. And she had it put on the back of it. And that really sums up the kind of person that he was.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it certainly sounds like it. I love that. I was just looking up something here. So we are. Gwen and I did an episode here just a little bit ago on meaning making and finding meaning in your grief. And I was just confirming this, but you are, your episode is going to be the one before we do our part two of that. And our part two of that is talking about things that have given your life kind of purpose Right, so what you feel like you have done in your grief that you never would have guessed you would have been able to do, you know, like things like this. Right. And I feel like that's so much of what you're doing, right? I mean, you right. wouldn't have been able to predict that Michael's legacy could turn into this, could turn no. into this program and you could be making just kids just a little bit happier all over the world. Or I right. mean, all, all over the country for now, right. maybe eventually all over the world, but all over the country, you know, just a little bit of Michael and just a little bit of, you know, fun and laughter, right. you know? Because we
2: put in each bag, we have a little postcard that kind of described how it started and who he was and, you know, that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, because I... I, my husband wasn't sure that we would continue with it, even though we had gotten the, you know, it taken a while to get it. And there are days I think I don't know how long I'll do it, um, but I know it's making a difference and I know Michael would want me to do it. And, you know, and once COVID is really behind us, other people can help me as opposed to it just being me because. I feel very protective of it that I want it to be sanitary and I know I've been vaccinated and I know, you know, what's safe to go in what bags. And so I've been the sole person putting them together. My husband carries the box to the post office, but I put them together.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, even back comparing it almost to me doing this podcast Initially, I really felt like I had to do every piece of it, every single thing. You know, I arranged everything. I edited every bit of it. I put everything, if it went on social media, I did it even though I'm terrible at it. And now I've gotten to the point where I can let some other people do that, do parts of it for me. And it's only because I've healed a little bit more And I don't need to do that for my own grief and my own grief journey. So I wonder, too, if as you get a little further out and maybe get through a little more healing time, if you will be able to let go of little pieces of it and let other people help
2: you with that. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope so.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a sign of getting better for sure when you're able to do that. But I'm so glad I did do everything at the beginning because I really needed to.
2: Right, because it's a distraction. It's something I can go downstairs and turn the TV on and do it, and and I, my head is just not ruminating about.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's something you can think. I, I'm sort of. I'm just doing this with Michael. I'm doing this for Michael. Right. I'm doing it with Michael. It's just my Michael time. Right. And and it's just, I think, good to be thinking about it that way. Yeah. You know, again, back to the isolation comment that your therapist made, another thing about that is that is incredibly easy to do during COVID though. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I look at all of the people who are isolated in COVID and you don't even have to be grieving to be isolated during COVID. Right. So. It, I, I would almost think it would be more unusual to be a grieving person and not be isolated during this time. And all that we've been going
2: through. So, right.
1: you know, you, things may start to be a lot, lot different as things open up. Um, right. And you feel, I mean, I flew,
2: you know, I went to Michigan to see my daughter. So mm-hmm. that was, you know, leaving my comfort zone. Cause I kind of felt when we went to Seattle last time, that I was leaving Michael behind. Yeah. That, you know, he's he's still here. And that was hard to do. This mm-hmm. time I didn't feel as strongly about that. That wow. you know I wanted to spend time with my daughter, and I went and we had a good time. And she she too is grieving, and we were able to talk about him. And she always says, you know, every time you talk think about the things he'll miss out on think about the things he did and yeah so i have this little chart and i put in there you know he went to this place and he got to do this and mm-hmm. he did more in his 27 years some people will do in a lifetime so
1: mm-hmm. well i certainly hope that his celebration of life it does wonders for you and is just so- yeah wonderful for your family i assume there will be a little bit of reggae music some um uh, yeah uh, you'll be maybe. playing some of the band
2: yeah probably yeah. back to we'll do like a little slideshow with mm-hmm. their music and,
1: i think that would be perfect i think it yeah. would be right to not include them somehow right Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about Michael. All right.
2: Thank you so much. And allowing me to talk to another Marcy. That's been fun. Yeah, that's (laughs) nice. All right. Well, let's keep in touch. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player, we are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcyandysmom.com. At be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.